Good morning. <laughs> so far in this sermon series on the Holy Spirit, we have worked through overviews, overviews of the identity of the Holy Spirit, who he is, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what he does. Regarding the identity of the Holy Spirit, we have seen in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is the promised presence of Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament takes the Holy Spirit and gives him a new title, and that is the Spirit of Christ. And so it can be said of every Christian, and it is said in Romans chapter 8, verse 10, Christ is in you. And then regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, He is today, He is making known the presence of Jesus Christ in and with the Christian. J.I. Packer writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of the Scriptures, once crucified, now glorified, is here, personally approaching and addressing me. And the Christian can say that. That Jesus Christ is right now, right here, He is personally approaching and addressing me. So the Holy Spirit, we've said, He is self-effacing. He is turning attention away from Himself. And He is, in the Christian, He is directing our attention toward the Son of God. Glorifying Jesus or illuminating Jesus. He is like a floodlight on Jesus. He is like a spiritual signpost pointed at Jesus. And that results in, for Christians like you and me, that results in fellowship with Christ and transformation into Christ-likeness and assurance of Christ's love. So that's just the overview that we've looked at so far. Now this morning, here is, I think, another overlooked ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we will consider the Holy Spirit's role in our conversion. For those of you who are Christians here this morning, we are going to consider the Holy Spirit's role in our conversion. Many of you are Christians here today. Maybe most of you are Christians here today. You believe the greatest true story ever told. That is the gospel. And you love the hero of that story. That is Jesus. You are like Paul in Galatians 2.20. You live this life by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Now, how did that happen? 
you were not born that way. I wasn't born that way. We were born, the Bible says, and experience tells us, we were born not loving God. Not desiring to honor God. Not wanting to go God's way, but wanting to go our own way. Our hearts actually, the Bible teaches, are not good. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our hearts are deceitful. And they are so sick, they're beyond cure. Mark 7, verse 21 says, For from out of the heart of a man come, and then there's this list of evil. Not things like faith, not things like believing the gospel, not good, but actually more bad. Romans 8, 7, and 8, talking about people, says that we are born in such a way that we do not submit to God's law. In fact, it says we cannot submit to God's law because there is something wrong in each and every one of us. That is a hard pill to swallow. It is what the Bible teaches. And it is, I know, many of you know from your own experience. It's proven true. So what happened? Why, Christian, is your faith in Jesus now? Why do you believe this fantastic Gospel. How did you become a Christian? Well, there is a human answer which you know by experience. There is what you did and probably what others did and that resulted in your salvation. But there is also a divine answer. And that is what God did to make you a Christian. There's a divine perspective. There is a view of your salvation or your conversion from God's perspective. And that can only be known by revelation. Through reading God's word. It's through doing something like what we're doing here today. And that is reading God's word that we can begin to understand what it is that God has done for us and what God has done in us and what God has even done to us. So let's go to God in prayer and let's ask him to help us today to understand his word. Our father in heaven. By your Holy Spirit, will you enable us now to understand your word so that we would love you more? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find today's main text on page 901. You probably heard the answer when Jason read this text for today. The answer 
to the question, how did you become a Christian from a divine perspective is by the Holy Spirit. Put simply, by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Of course, someone can say Jesus is Lord insincerely, but that's not what Paul is talking about. Anyone could just mouth those words. What Paul is teaching is that only by the Holy Spirit can someone sincerely confess Jesus as Lord. Only by the work of the Holy Spirit can someone actually and sincerely and mean it to the bottom of who they are say that Jesus is my Lord. He is my King. And so that is going to be the main theme of this sermon. Now, the reason it is so important to understand this, I mean, why is it that big of a deal? Or why does it matter? Why is it important for us to dig deeply into God's Word and understand how we became a Christian? I mean, isn't what's important that we are a Christian? Isn't that what's most important? And we love Jesus right now and we should follow Jesus right now. That's very important. But why is it also important to understand what has happened to make us a Christian? And the answer is, God's glory and God's credit is at stake. It is important that we understand the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation so that God gets the credit and the glory that He is due. And as a reminder, there is nothing more important in all the universe than giving God glory. If you want to know what everything everywhere is about, even those things that we can't comprehend or understand, it is all moving in one direction, and that is the glory of God. God's chief aim and purpose is that He would be glorified, that He would be worshipped, that He would be seen as great. And so anything we do to ensure that God gets the glory and the credit that is due Him is very important. Psalm 115.1 Not to us, O Lord, but to Your name give glory. And so if the theme of this sermon is the Holy Spirit's role in our salvation, the aim is to glorify God by drawing 
attention to His Holy Spirit's ministry in making you a Christian. So let's go back and let's briefly consider your conversion from a human perspective. What did you do or what did others do? This is what you know from experience. How did you become a Christian? I mean, some of you have been asked that question. How did you become a Christian? And you probably answered the way I would answer. And that is that you gave your human perspective based on your human experience. And I don't know all the details of of your conversion, but I know this, that you heard the gospel or you were taught the gospel and you believed it and you gave your life to Jesus, however you want to say that. But you heard the gospel, you were taught the gospel, and then at some point you believed it. And you began trusting Jesus. And you began living for Him. But let me ask you a question. Why did you do that? Why did you believe? Presumably, others heard that same gospel. And they did not believe. Maybe... Others were hearing it at the same time you were hearing it. And they still, they do not believe it. Why not? Now there is something in you that does not want to say, because I'm smarter than they are. You don't want to say that. I'm, I'm more open to spiritual things than they are. I'm a better person. I'm just more spiritual. I have more wisdom. I have more understanding. I'm really not surprised that I believed And they didn't. But nobody answers like that. Nobody thinks that way. You and I, we know better. That is not the reason why you believed and someone else did not. The reason is found not in something that was different about you or something that you did differently. The answer is found in what God the Spirit has done in you, making you willing to believe. So let's move on now and spend the rest of our time together considering your conversion, my conversion from a divine perspective. And so let's change the form of our question just slightly from how did you become a Christian to how did God save you? That's another question. It's talking about the same thing. One gets to your experience. 
so-and-so preached the gospel to me, and I don't know what happened. I just believed. And we're going to talk about the I don't know what happened this morning. I don't know. My parents taught me the gospel all growing up, and I went through the motions, and I went to church, and then... You know, when I was in my early 20s, I just, something happened and something changed in me. And it, I didn't just believe it. I mean, I believed it. You say things like that. I don't know. I grew up around it and I believed it all, but I didn't really love Jesus or feel like I needed Jesus. And then I was 27 years old and all of a sudden I was desperate for Jesus and I wanted to sing to him and I wanted to pray to him and I wanted to read his word and I wanted to be around his people. And I don't know what happened, but something changed. We're talking about the I don't know what happened. When we get to your salvation and my salvation from a divine perspective. And the way we ask it is, how did God save you? Because friends, you did not save yourself. You did not save yourself. God saved you. So when we read the Bible, we actually discover that God has taken many difficult steps in order to save us. There is an order to our salvation. So if you are taking notes today, I'm going to list eight steps for you now. This is all in the I don't know what happened. We read the Bible and find out just how much work God has been doing to save us. So let me list you these eight steps and then we'll go back through and define each, and of course, we're going to pay special attention to the role of the Holy Spirit. But here they are. There's some big words here. Number one, election. Number two, atonement. Number three, calling. Number four, here's your chance to shine. Faith. That's it. Number five, justification. Number six, adoption. Number seven, sanctification. Number eight, glorification. Let me read those real quick. I won't number them off. Election, atonement, calling, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification. Number one, election. Before creation, God the Father chose some people to be saved and he predestined them to eternal life. Now, I'll read you one verse, but there are many, many more. Those are two words, by the way, that many Christians, because of how they've grown up and what we including myself, have been taught growing up are very uncomfortable with. And two of the most uncomfortable words to many Christians are election and predestination. But listen, those words are just right out of the Scripture. We could certainly talk and debate about what they mean, but those are biblical words. So let me just read you one Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who 
has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Election teaches that before creation, God the Father chose some people to be saved and He predestined them to eternal life. And the reality is that God, if God does not elect, if God does not choose, then no one chooses God. So it is in His grace. Number two, atonement. Atonement. This is God the Son now. Through His life and death, Jesus Christ earned the salvation of His people. Atonement or at one meant at one meant Jesus reconciled sinners to God by living and dying in their place and this is what we tell people when we tell them the good news of the gospel first peter 3:18 Christ Suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So that in just one and two is God the Father's role in our salvation, and that is God the Son's role in our salvation. And now we get to the Holy Spirit. The Father chose you, the Son lived, died, and rose from the dead for you. And now we see the Holy Spirit, He has, Christian, awakened you. He has awakened you to the reality of what God has done for you. God, by the Holy Spirit, and through the Word of God, calls His people to Himself and changes their hearts so that they freely respond to Him in saving faith. That is calling. God, by the Holy Spirit and through His Word, God calls His people to Himself. But He does it in a powerful way. He changes their hearts so that those hearts, remember, that are deceitful and beyond cure, those hearts that cannot please God, that do not please God, those hearts that are the wellspring of life from which come evil thoughts and immorality and sin and on and on. Those hearts, God changes those hearts 
so that when they hear the call of the gospel, they believe and place their faith in Christ. If you are a Christian, at some point in your life, this is exactly what God did by His Holy Spirit in you. So there's something going on, isn't there, outwardly, and there's something going on inwardly there. God, outwardly, through His Word, usually it's another believer, but some of you, I know your testimony, you became Christians, and it wasn't a believer that told you the gospel. I love these testimonies. What was it? You were just reading the Bible. So it's always through God's Word. You hear about atonement. You hear about your sin. You you read about who you are and who God is and what He's done to save you. Usually that's a believer that's preaching the Gospel to you. But not always. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. You have to hear the Word of Christ. You can't believe something that you have not heard. But there is this outward call, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's an argument, isn't it? We need to send preachers. Christians need to have the gospel on their tongue because no one's going to believe something that they have never heard. But it takes more than that, doesn't it? Isn't that what we talked about at the very beginning? Some of you heard the gospel many times. You heard that outward call many times. Maybe you even sat in church and there were invitations extended to you. And you did not respond. Or you responded outwardly and then looking back, you know that you weren't actually responding inwardly. There was no real change in your life. You were just going through the motions. And then there's all those to this day who have heard the gospel and don't believe. They've heard Jesus calling out to them through his word, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. They've heard Christ calling out to them through his gospel and and through his people saying, come and and put your faith in Christ. If you've ever been here, you hear it at least once at the end of every service, and that is turn to Christ and be saved. And there are people here every single week who hear that call to turn to Christ and be saved, and they say in their hearts, no. No. So what's different? What happened in you, Christian? Did you overcome your resistance to the gospel or did God overcome your resistance to the gospel? What do you want to say? We read and we see that there is another powerful call that goes straight to the heart. And you don't say no to it. You don't think about it. You don't consider it. You just believe. You say, yes, Lord. 
1 Corinthians 1, 22 and following. Listen to this call. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That is, we preach the gospel. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you hear that? To these called, this is different. To these called the gospel, it is not folly, it is power and wisdom. They, these called, they believe. Why? Because they have been changed. They have been transformed. They have been regenerated. They have been born again. They have been born again, and they cry out in faith. Like a little baby that's born, and they cry. When a Christian is born again, they cry out in faith. Immediately. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. Some of you are familiar with this passage. That this very wise man, Nicodemus, is having an incredibly frustrating conversation with Jesus. And he wants to know what he's got to do to be saved. He wants to be in the kingdom of God. And he wants to know what it is that he needs to do. And Jesus gives a very interesting answer. He says, truly, truly, I say to you... Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to get into the kingdom of God? Imagine this. You need to be born again. Huh. How does that work? Jesus goes on. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? That's a very good question. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, ew. <laughs> he didn't say that. But Jesus gets to the point, like, I'm not talking physically, Jesus says. I'm talking spiritually. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. He said, Nicodemus, you need to be born of the Spirit. Unless that, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So what has happened to someone so that they now are able to believe. They have been born again. The Holy Spirit has the theological word regenerated them. He has called them out of darkness and into life powerfully. God, by the Holy Spirit and through the word of God, calls His people to Himself and changes their hearts so that they freely 
respond in saving faith, which gets us to number four. Faith and repentance. Finally, we do something. This is our part, one of eight. Because the Holy Spirit has awakened us, because the Holy Spirit has transformed us, because the Holy Spirit has caused us to be born again. I'm just using scriptures here. Because the Holy Spirit has taken our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. Because the Holy Spirit has lifted the veil from before us. What happens? We see Jesus. We see ourselves for who we are. We see our sin for what it is. And we see Jesus for who he is. And we see the good news for what it is. And we respond to that call. We repent. We turn away from our sin. And we place our faith, our trust, our reliance for salvation in Christ and Christ alone. This is actual conversion now. 1 John 5.1 Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that includes you, Christian, has been born of God. It doesn't say everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is then born again. Though that's what I was taught. Growing up, I think because it made better philosophical sense and it didn't disrupt my feelings or thoughts or understandings about God very much. But it's just not what the Bible teaches. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. The order, remember, of this is all very important if God is going to get the glory. Being born again by the Holy Spirit comes first and then faith. And if we switch those and it is my faith just coming from nowhere but within myself. And God has not done anything different for me than He has done for anyone else. He hasn't just awakened me. No, I've just figured it out. Then there is glory I get. There is credit I get. There is boasting I get. That is the point of the Bible's teaching on this. It is to take away every last bit of boasting that you could possibly have. It is taught and intended to take away every last ground of bragging that you could have. So that you could never look at someone who's not a Christian and think that you are better than they are. What do you think the difference is? God in His grace and mercy and Scripture makes clear not because of anything special or good in you over and beyond anyone else. 
a pure act of grace and mercy, He opened your eyes and your heart. And if He did not open your eyes and your heart, you'd be a dead, stone, cold unbeliever right now. And so God gets all the praise and all the glory. Regeneration, then faith, then repentance. Which is why the Bible, when it talks about faith and repentance, it talks about faith as a gift from God. It's a gift. Faith is a gift from God because God has changed you in such a way that enables you to have faith. And repentance, it said, is granted to you. You say, well, repentance is something that I do. Faith is something that I do. Absolutely. Yes, you place your faith in Jesus. You repent from your sin. But why? Why do you do that and someone else doesn't? God has given you the gift of faith. And you've exercised it. And God has granted you the ability to repent. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. What's the big deal there, Paul? So that no one may boast. Acts eleven eighteen. the disciples are excited to hear that even Gentiles are believing and repenting. And it's interesting what they say. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. 2 Timothy 2.24 says the same thing. Okay, there's more. Keep reading your Bible. We discover number five, justification. So God makes a ruling based on your faith in Christ. God declares, like, boom, done. Your sins are forgiven, and the righteousness of my Son is yours. Done. Justification. He pardons you, and He accepts you. Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Number six, adoption. The gavel comes down again. It comes down again and God welcomes us as members into his family. We've been pardoned, we've been accepted, we have been justified, our sins are forgiven, we have the righteousness of Jesus, and so God adopts us then into his family. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Number seven, sanctification. Now, if you are a Christian, numbers one through six are in the past. Number seven here 
is in the present. We'll talk in weeks to come about how glorious it is, by the way, that numbers 1 through 6 are in the past. Done, sealed, unchangeable. But here we are in the present sanctification. That is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to make you more like Christ. God, the Spirit, is not content to leave you the way you were when you became a Christian. Thank God. But He is changing you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Finally, number eight, glorification. This is the last step, and this is still to come. God will finally remove all trace of sin from a Christian. Imagine that. One day, God will, this is glorification, God will remove every last trace of sin in you and He will give you a resurrection body. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears... We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So there it is. That is the order of our salvation. This is what God has done to save us. Election, atonement, calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, and one day glorification. Now let's go from our perspective. When we became a Christian, it was just we, we heard the gospel and we believed. Or maybe for some of you, I, I've heard the gospel for as long as I can remember. My parents taught me when I was little and young. And so I've just, I've always believed. That is a great testimony. And that's many of your testimonies. I heard the gospel and I believed. That's how it went for you. It's not like you were conscious of all of these steps along the way. Uh, I'm being called right now, and now I'm being, I'm being regenerated right now, and, and, and I'm being adopted right now, and now here I am being sanctified, and oh, this is the, whole, this is the general call, but now this is the inward call. That, that's, you read the Bible... And then you come to understand what it is that God was doing. But that's not your experience. This is, as we read Scripture, this is a logical order of what God has done in all of us. But many of these steps all happened in an instant for you. Just in an instant. That's why many of you, your testimony is, I don't know. I didn't believe, I believe. 
I got on the bus a non-Christian. I got off the bus a Christian. I went to church a non-Christian. I went home a Christian. I don't know. Well, now we do know. So that God gets the credit. So that God gets the glory that he deserves. As Christians today, we read God's word. And what are we doing? We're learning more and more about what God has done for us. We're learning more and more about how good God is. How kind and gracious and patient and merciful. And as he increases, the more we read, the more we read, we decrease. The pride dissipates. And the praise increases. Our love grows. Our worship grows. Our devotion grows. So from a divine perspective, regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you became a Christian because the Holy Spirit brought you to Christ. By lifting the veil on your sin and God's grace, He has changed you from the inside out. He has revealed the gospel to you. He has united you to Christ. He has made you His dwelling place as the Spirit of Christ Himself. And so what? Is the question we always ask at the end of the study of God's Word. What does this mean to me? What does this mean to you? Again, why is it so important that we understand what God has done, specifically through the Holy Spirit to save us? In closing, let me offer two brief applications. This truth of the Holy Spirit's work in our conversion, it affects at least our prayers and our praise. I mean, there's so many things we could say. But how about understanding what the Holy Spirit has done to save us? That affects the way we pray, doesn't it? I mean, it should. You have people right now that you love, and you're not sure that you're going to be with them forever. You have people that you love and care about and when their time comes and they leave this earth and you don't know when that's going to be, you have no confidence that you're going to spend eternity with them. In fact, some of them, you have great confidence that you're not. They don't love God. They don't believe the biblical gospel. You couldn't with any sense of confidence say that they're saved. That should concern us, whoever it is. There's also people that we know and love, care deeply about. And so we tell them truth and we look for opportunities to preach the gospel and, and try and demonstrate for them the, the effect of the gospel on our own lives and how it's changed us. We want them to see that. And we want them to know who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And that's what we should do.
And then, or I should say, and also we pray. We pray. Now, if we don't believe everything we just studied, my question for you would be, what do you pray? So what I pray, and I know most of you pray, even without thinking about it, is God save this person. Um, I hope you don't pray something like, well, God, I've done, I've shared the gospel with them, and I know that you've done everything that you can do, and, and you're a gentleman, and you won't do anything else. If you do the same thing for everybody, you love everybody the same exact way, and so the ball is in their court. God, I don't want you to infringe on that, so... Like, what do you pray? I would take Scripture and pray that. And say, God, will you please, 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 will you do in them what you have done in me? Will you take their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh? Will you remove the scales from their eyes? Will you lift the veil? Will you give them ears to hear and, and eyes to see? Will you, will you open up their heart like you did with Lydia in Acts chapter 16 so that they'll respond to the gospel? Will you powerfully call them by your Holy Spirit? Will, will your word come to them this next time, not just in word, but in power? Will you give new life to them? Like you did with Lazarus. Will you not just call out, Lazarus, come forth, but will you actually give them new life? Will you cause them to be born again? Not born of the will of man, but born of God. Will you transform them? I mean, these are just scriptures that we're talking about here. And that's what we pray because we actually believe this. And we believe that if God doesn't do that, then they'll be lost. And they will willingly and cheerfully run their way straight to hell. And even there, desire to be as far away from God as possible. Rather than love Him and trust Him. They need to be changed to see their sin for what it is, to know that they are a great sinner and he is the only and great savior. So it does affect our prayers. First Corinthians 2.14, we believe this. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he cannot, he's not even capable, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned, and so we pray that God would send His Holy Spirit. Second and finally, praise. There doesn't need to be much said here. We've touched on it throughout this sermon, but this truth, it accurately displays the magnitude of God's grace. It, it puts the glory where it's supposed to be. It, it gives God the credit that is due his name. It keeps us from boasting. Paul understood this, of course. And he said, and we should say with him in 1 Corinthians 15.10, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. 
And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though. Right? Wait a minute, Paul. Are you boasting? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. One of the ways that we respond here as a church in thanksgiving and gratitude is that every week we remember and proclaim the Lord's death. We think of number two on our list today of the atonement. That Jesus Christ came and lived and suffered and died in our place so that we could be reconciled to God. And he, in his kindness, gave us these symbols and gave us this instruction that, that what he has done could come alive to us every single week through this bread and through this juice. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're visiting with us today, you are welcome to take communion with us if you meet the, the biblical criteria. That is, if you are a baptized believer. You have turned from your sin and you have placed your faith in Christ. You are devoted to him and to his body, to his people. And so you're committed to a local church, whether it is this or another one that preaches the same gospel that you heard here today. If that's the case, then you are welcome to take communion with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. If you'll come forward through the center aisle and then grab that bread and juice and return to your seat and then wait and we'll take it together as a church family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And we turn our attention now to remembering the death of your son. We thank you for this celebration, this memorial that you've given us, whereby we remember the price that has been paid so that we could be forgiven and pardoned and accepted. So help us now in this time, God, to be undistracted from your praise. And may we give you all the glory. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen.